Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1997 film Gattaca. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Barrett, it has been a while, um, mm. but I'm I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to be talking about Gattaca. Before we get to Gattaca, did you watch any movies over uh, over this break? Yeah, I did. And now that you've asked me that, I'm going to draw a blank on what I watched. Um, but I do I do remember the most recent thing I watched. Um, I had a, a friend who's a fellow cinephile visiting from out of town, and we uh, he loves classic Hollywood. We both subscribe to the Criterion channel. Another plug for Criterion. Um, so we watched uh, Kirk Douglas's favorite film, uh, Lonely or the Brave, uh, from 1962, which um, I had seen several years ago, but uh, we, uh, I, really, I really enjoyed it. I watched a bunch of other films, too, and I'm not remembering. What, oh, I know what. I, I revisited um, Waiting for Goffman, uh, which is one of my favorite Christopher uh, um, shoot. You know, Christopher Guest. Yeah, Christopher Guest film, yeah. Well, I will say um, I watched a lot and I'll make one last plug for Criterion. Um, that's what I did uh, over this break as I tried to check out some movies on there. And the most interesting thing I watched as a fan of The Big Lebowski is I watched Rob- Robert Altman's 1973 film, The Long Goodbye. Oh, yeah. if, you're, if you're a fan of The Big Lebowski, The Long Goodbye is yeah. so interesting because... I knew that I had heard, oh yeah, that this is this was one of the texts that they used to make this film, but it was so crazy to watch it and think they really looked at this movie along with a couple other things to make The Big Lebowski. There's so much overlap and even little references that people make that sort of show up in Lebowski. It was really fun to watch. Oh, I, I'll throw in one other I'm remembering now since we said Criterion. Um, this same friend gift gave me uh, as a gift the Criterion new Criterion edition of Tarkovsky's Mirror. So I watched the film and I started the the, uh, the disc comes. There's two discs and three documentaries. So I've also started on some of the documentaries. Fantastic. Uh, right. Well, we are here to talk about Gattaca. So let's jump right into that. What is your history with this film? Is this something you watched when, I mean, is this something you saw in theaters or is this something? Yeah. You yeah. As far as I, re- I, I do, I did see it in the theater and um, which also leads me to, to note that um, the fall of 1977, when this film came out, was a was a pretty good uh, fall for films. And, uh, so, and then I, I must've watched it some sometime after that as well. Um, I don't remember exactly, but fall of 1970, 1997, Boogie Nights, Jackie Brown, The Sweet Hereafter, Wag the Dog, Eve's Bayou, Goodwill Hunting, The Ice Storm, and Amistad, As Good As It Gets. So all, those all came out at the same time as Gattaca. Wow. And I was trying to think, why was I not aware of this movie? And you just laying out those films. I was studying abroad this semester. That's why I didn't. Yeah. That's why I, I was not. Uh, I was not as aware of movies that were coming out at this time. There was also one more small little film that came out called Titanic. That's right, right at the end there. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I will say I had never seen this film. This was a movie that I was aware of. I kind of, it very vaguely knew sort of what it was about. Um, but I will say in this past month, as I've been talking to people and they've been asking me what the next movie we're going to watch is, um, whenever I would bring this up, like I would see people's eyes light up and be like, oh, Gattaca's a good one. They were like, they're excited to sort of hear us dig into this, uh, dig into this movie. So this is written and directed by Andrew Nichol. This is his first, uh, the first movie he directs. Does he mean anything to you as a filmmaker? I know he hasn't made a lot. 
Yeah. Um, so he um, his his first kind of big splash was as a writer. He was a, a nominated for an Academy Award for writing The Truman Show, which is another film I've thought about revisiting. Um, and right after Gattaca, I liked it so much. I, I, I did keep up with his career for his next two films. He did a film after this with um, Al Pacino called Simone, which is also Sim One. Uh, it's uh, another, again, another kind of futuristic film. It's uh, although not so futuristic anymore. It's Al Pacino using a um, a simulation actress to replace Winona Ryder in a film he's directing. And then the film he made after that was very interesting, very satirical, called Lord of War, with uh, Nicolas Cage. And if you enjoy Nicolas Cage's uh, scenery chewing, which I actually do, I love Nick Cage as an over the top actor. Um, Lord of War is a really interesting film about an arms dealer. And then to be frank, I kind of lost track of, of Nickel. He did three, he's done three more films since then. Most recently, something called The Good Kill, which reunites him with Ethan Hawke uh, from 2014. But I, have, I haven't seen that. So um, as I, like I said, I knew a little bit about this film. I knew that it was, uh, had some sci-fi elements and was sort of a, that, that Gattaca was a dystopia of some sort. Um, and I, I have a big test when I, um, I know everyone's mileage varies with with dystopias, and the, the test I have is is my Aldous Huxley Brave New World test, which is a good dystopia should be something that when you first look at it, you would say like, "Oh, I get why people would want this," mm -hmm. right? Because if you read Brave New World, it's yeah. actually a fairly it's like it's not that it doesn't seem that bad at first. You're like, well, you don't you know you're kind of slotted into your rank in society, but you get consequence free sex and drugs so it's like okay well you know that like you could see you could see how we ended up there sometimes mm -hmm. with with dystopias i sort of look at them and think i don't quite get this seems really dark how did we get here and this one was this one passes the test with flying colors because i feel like i totally th this makes perfect sense why we would do this because the first thing i thought about was this is a movie without focusing on uh, Vincent and Anton's parents. This is a movie very rooted in parenting. Mm. You know, you see them only at the beginning, but the dystopia setup is all about this tension that you, that, that I think every parent feels where it's like, I don't want to, I want to give my child this kind of freedom. I don't want to push them in a direction. I don't want to try to engineer their life. But at the same time, you know enough about life to know, like, I want to give them the advantages that I can, and I want to put them into certain positions. And this movie does a great job of kind of using the the sci-fi elements of this um, to sort of set this up. I mean, there's there is this great scene with the doctor when um, uh, after after Vincent's born and they're and they're going in to have Anton and the doctor sort of laying out, you know, here's how great this this child is going to be, and they even say like, well couldn't we leave some of it up to chance? And the doctor sort of turns to him and it, almost as if saying like, you wouldn't be a good parent if you did that. Like, mm. why would you want, if you could control this, why would you not want to control it? Um, and it's, it's really, it's really um, seductive in that way, mm -hmm. you know, like, so, so I think the, the initial setup to this uh, for one thing, it's, it's, it's good storytelling. Like, like you, you, you get pretty quickly, you get, the world that they're living in and how they ended up there. And what I also love about it is that it's a dystopia, which is not rooted in politics. 
it's rooted in the market almost more. It's like as a parent, like how do I, how do I do what's best? Like like how is parenting advertised to me? How do I do what's best for my kids? And we end up in this rather than this sort of like totalitarian state that's subjecting people to eugenics or something. I actually thought that was a great setup. That's a really interesting comment, uh, Sam, because one of the, you know, there's a fair number of negative reviews of the film. If you look at, at Rotten Tomatoes, um, not, not strongly negative, but, but, you know, reviews that see some issues with the film. Um, and one of those reviews, as I recall, said, you know, it would have been better if there had been, I really wanted more kind of political background to what was going on. But I, I agree with you. I, I think that, um, I think the way that he lays out the world, I, I think if he'd gone into the politics of it, I think it would have diffused the focus a little bit. And it really would have changed the point of the film which is really, as you were saying, it's really about the idea of, let's imagine that you can make this choice. Now, the choice that you make then ends up having implications for how society is structured. You don't even need, you don't even need a political apparatus for that to happen. Um, the other thing the doctor says, which is interesting to me, you know, right after they say that about leaving things up to chance, um, and elsewhere, chance is also called fate. Um, he says, well, remember, there's still, it's still the best of you. So he still, you know, he still tries to rescue this idea that it's not, it's not an artificial creature. It, it's just that we're taking all the best elements and putting them together. And it's also clear that it's not always a completely foolproof message me method, right? Because we have Uma Thurman's character who has, even though she's an engineered person, she's at least we assume she is. Um, she still has a, a heart defect to deal with. Right, and we realize that the uh, the the doctor at the end has an engineered child that also has some shortcomings and, and, and limitations. And that actually gets to the other part of what makes a good dystopia. And I feel like this passes this as well, which is the down. So, so you have to have a dystopia that you'd almost want. And then the downside needs to be a real downside. Yeah. And I feel like what I like about this is the downside is subtle. They don't like hit you over the head with how miserable this world is. But it's more of this vague sense that like every genetically engineered person seems like there's this like fog of of not quite depression around them, but like like no one is no one seems particularly happy, even though these are created to be the most like like the most perfect version of these people that they can be. And what's interesting about that is you start to realize how many of the characters that we get to know that are the genetically perfected people, how they still focus on their shortcomings, right? There's something about human nature because they're still human beings. So we see, you know, Irene has this heart condition and for her, she sees this. I mean, we see her constantly like taking that, taking the, the heart pill. And for her, this is the thing which is keeping her from getting to go into space. And like this, so this seems to be this weight around her. Um, yeah. uh, the Jude Lodge, it's hard to name characters because they have multiple names. Eugene, um, he obsesses on the silver medal, yeah. you know, and it's like, you know, even yeah. though I'm the best I could be, you know, genetically the, the most perfect I could be, I'm still second place, mm -hmm. you know, and, and Anton's brother has this, mm -hmm. this one time when they went swimming and he fell short, he fell short to his other brother. And that, that pushes this kind of, jealousy which isn't sort of maybe a super big thing but it's sort of laying there and i also think about the job that his brother has 
And his mm. brother is basically like a cop. Right. And it's and, and and you see both in Jude Law and in Anton, not so much in, in, in Irene, you see that they're almost incapable of dreaming or aspiring or striving. Because they're it's assumed they're going to be these great things. So it's like they're incapable of that. I mean, Jude Law even talks about um you know, you shared with me your dream. You gave me your dream because it's like he doesn't, he has all the potential in the world, but because he's, because he didn't have to do anything to get that, it's just granted to him. It's like he can't, um, he can't find any joy or any dream in that. So I actually feel like that sets up the negative side of this dystopia or one of the negative pieces of it really, really well. Well, you know, one, one of the ways I think about that in contemporary terms, Sam, is that, um, you know, we have a, a we have a generation of students who are often terrified of failure, um, who are, you know, who, who are really concerned about doing something wrong. And in a way, this world kind of embodies with the with the valids, it kind of embodies uh, and tries to def defeat that particular fear, like the idea that you can be that as if excellence isn't in relationship to something less than excellence, or as if achievement isn't in relationship to failure. Um, I mean, those are, I think what the film is underscoring is those are necessary binary relationships. You can't have one without, without the other. And they're trying to create a world in which there's only upsides and not downsides, at least, at least for the valids. So one of the things that I think about is, um, in this relationship, in, in this sense, is the, you know, the quote from Ecclesiastes um, this, at the beginning of the film, right? Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. And this notion that human nature is fundamentally um, maybe flawed, fundamentally imperfect, fundamentally limited. Um, I think about the short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called The Birthmark, where um, there's a scientist who has married a, a woman who is in every respect perfect, except she has a birthmark. Um, and he's convinced that he needs to remove the birthmark in order to make her perfect. And so um, he subjects her to all kinds of uh, chemical treatments, et cetera, et cetera. And on the day that he succeeds and the birthmark fades away, she of course dies. Um, and I think that's, uh, to me, Gattaker kind of is reflecting that notion that you can't take the flaws out of human nature because you would be missing the point of what it means to be human. Yeah. So if you think about this movie and I want to uh, jump sort of toward, so we have the, the setup, we have the darkness around this. I'm curious, like when you think about what the message of this movie is, like what the, the big idea is you know, well, if someone were to ask you, like, what is this movie at its core about? What would you, because I feel like there's lots of ways you could read this movie. I, I yeah, and, and I think there are a number of different themes that I see the movie in, in, in engaging. Um, so I don't want to kind of rule those out because I right, want to talk right, right. about those. Yeah. No, I, I, I think the movie is, is fundamentally about what it means to be a human being, if I could boil it down to that. And, and, and the idea that, um, human nature is about striving. Uh, it's about um, not being limited by expectations or some kind of uh, genetic destination, but it's all about um, striving to achieve uh, the best that you think you can achieve. 
Yeah, and and I, I feel like I mean there there's obviously like a a nature versus nurture kind sure. of thing here, you know, where it's like like the 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 genetically the the valids are people who were were engineered a kind of way, and and the you know and and Vincent has to. And what's interesting is Vincent isn't really nurtured by the people around him, but he has to like make himself right. It is this sort of will or or, or something, and it, it it makes me think about um. Other pieces of sci- other pieces of sci-fi where it, it's uh, what's interesting is these are all human beings, but it feels like the pieces of sci-fi where it's like a human versus a machine, and what the human being has is creativity and has these other you know these these things to do things that are beyond what the the um, the machine can conceive of. So what's interesting about this is that the valids aren't machines; they're just engineered, but they end up functioning like machines. <laughs> To a certain degree, right? Like they 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 sort of make these assumptions. And one of the the, the most interesting moments in this uh, this movie, and it's it could almost be tossed off as well. Here's how we're gonna here's how we're gonna um, explain why this works, even though Jude Law and Ethan Hawke don't look anything alike. How he can just become him, and and what the the um, I think it's the the Tony Shalhoub character says. Mm-hmm. Oh, you have to realize nobody ever looks at the pictures. They just tr- trust what the machine says. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which, my my brain exploded at that point, and, and you know, because at first, because again, that could be looked at as like, well, that's how we're explaining this away. But what I think about a lot with technology, even in our world, is the way we've started to outsource things that used to be things that we did, like memory. We've outsourced memory to the cloud where it's like, well, I don't need to, I mean, I, we I run into this in teaching all the time in teaching history. So it's like, well, why do I need to know this? I can just look it up if I ever need to know what this, when this thing happened or something like that. And what I always try to tell students is, well, if you want to have the ability to do creative synthetic thinking, you need to be able to know things so you can attach it to other things. If we keep outsourcing, right, we lose something they're outsourcing their sense of observation even it's like instead of looking at what's in front of them they constantly are seeing a picture of vincent which is mm-hmm. so clearly ethan hawk and it's like and they and then they have ethan hawk in front of them and nobody's saying this is the same guy because they have outsourced so much their sense of of observation and what they and what they trust as true to what these machines tell them. So, so they're not themselves machines, but they're kind of becoming machines to the extent that they're outsourcing the things the human should do, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't know if, I, if this is gonna be a disagreement, Sam, but I'm gonna refine that point a little bit because I do think there's also the very significant exchange between. This is towards in the second half of the film when um, uh, Vincent encounters his former boss, Ernest Borgnine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when he was a janitor, and he doesn't rec- and Borgnine, uh, the boss, doesn't recognize him at all. Hmm. And so I think it. I think that also says something about the power of uh, of prejudice and assumptions. Mm-hmm. He just assumes if he's on if he's a Gattaca guy, he must be there. He must, he must belong there. So it it actually reminds me of another movie I watched over break, uh, Surges is the Lady Eve, where Barbara Stanwyck uh, comes back as a totally, it, posing as a different person, even though she's the same person in the second half of the film, and Henry Fonda doesn't recognize her. So it's, it's the power of the assumptions that we make about others. In addition to, I think you've made a very profound point about the outsourcing. But in yeah. addition, because, because one of the things I find really strange about the film 
and about the world of the film rather is that if valids are so superior to invalids then why do you have to do the screening in other words if 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 vincent can walk in as an invalid and do the job just as well as a valid then then all you're doing is plain and simple discriminating based on based on an arbitrary measure which is how most discrimination works right so so i i find there's something very um self-contradictory about this world and i think that's andrew nichols point that you know if valids are so superior to invalids and of course this this trickles down to the murder investigation right if there was an invalid in the building that must be the person who committed who committed the crime um so i think that's that's a really powerful the driver in the film yeah no i i love that idea of once we have built a system now we need to justify that system you know which yeah. is which is part of where where you know when you think about the the history of how we think about race right right yeah. we had the system of slavery and it's like well now we in the enlightenment it's like well now we need to justify what we're doing if we're going to have all this language of human rights and reason so we have to almost like then go back and say well Okay, we need to do this. We need to define these things in a particular way in order to to justify this other thing. So, so they so they they can't allow they can't allow someone like Vincent because it proves what they've been doing wrong. It proves what they've been doing wrong. So they need to discriminate, even though you know the the um, the director when he's talking to uh, to to Vincent and he's like you know millions of lines of code and every one of them is perfect like he's like like the, he's telling him you are exactly what we have built and, and and we know actually he's not that he's not what you built because you didn't build him um so i that's where i think that the the sort of sci-fi dystopia stuff really works there's one other really subtle moment that i loved in this movie because they don't explain it um and i feel like you could read it in one of two ways and either of them is really interesting it's when they go to the concert the pianist is playing right and then yeah. he throws his gloves and we realize that he has six fingers which means one of two things <laughs> either he is a an, an invalid he's a godchild who happened to be born that way but can do something nobody else can do or he's a sign of the next step which is well mm. if we can engineer it's like what if we actually then made the next step say like what if we built humans better than and he's the cutting edge of technology and either one is really interesting to think about <laughs> yeah and, 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 and yeah it, and it's also interesting to think about well so is his piano playing really virtuosic or is it a kind of a cheat because if you got six fingers there's a lot you can do that somebody with five fingers can't do and you sort of like well so what's the point you know, like why, 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 why do you want to be able to play the piano with six fingers? Is it, is it, is it, is the music that much better as a result? It's, it's really hard to know why you would want to pursue that goal. But, but yeah, but it's interesting to think like, is that figure who is, is unique to them, right? Because clearly it's advertised on the sign you see. Right. It's a, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, is it unique to them or is it a threat to all these people who've been engineered to say, well, the next model's coming and the next model is going right. to make us look at you and say, oh, you only have, you know, you're not actually built, we can build a better version of you and then you actually become the thing you're discriminating against. The, the, right, the right, right, right. Because, you know, because what they've been doing up to now is they, they've they been um, kind of cultivating what, what's already there, but the idea that they're going to start to add. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to add fingers, maybe maybe we'll add some toes, maybe we'll add, add, an, add an eye, you know, mm -hmm. who knows, yeah. Um, I, I, 
you talked about the 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 murder investigation. You hinted at that. One of the things I love about this movie is how uh, it definitely is a it fits into a genre, right? Of like this kind of dystopian sci-fi, but it has embedded in it at least two other really interesting, um, really interesting genres and um, or subgenres, maybe. Um, and they and and one of them I is is, is it, I absolutely love the the one the, the the first one is that I love that the whole thing always feels like a heist movie because because there is like every time he goes to work it's like a heist movie he needs to do all this stuff and set up and you're just i feel the stress of how perfect he needs to be in order to do that but i also love just the the tactile sense of like what are the things he has to do you know like every morning he has to put on fingertips every morning he has to take off all of the like like all of the the dead skin and all the different things he has to do and every time he goes and puts his finger on there i'm even though i know he has he's done this a thousand times i'm stressed like is this time is it going to work and then there's a new test he needs to pass so it constantly feels like this sort of heist in that way the other genre and this is the one you mentioned that i think is actually really interesting storytelling wise is the the murder mystery that's happening here because a lesser movie would make us really threatened by the fact that like maybe Jerome or Vincent is going to get, you know, caught for this murder, but it's like, but we kind of know he didn't commit the murder. Like we're pretty certain of that. So it's like this thing that happens in the background. It's almost like this is the B plot to what should be a murder mystery movie, but instead it's inverted. And that B plot, he gets swept up into it because mm -hmm. of the eyelash. And it's like, he's got nothing to do with that. Right. But but it's it becomes this driving force of creating this thing that he needs to run from. Um, but the murder itself is not that important other than it creates this other tension. And I I love that. It also gives us uh, Alan Arkin, who is like yes. like a he's like a character. He's like a Columbo character from like a different movie who's in this. And he's got he ends up like almost accidentally pursuing Vincent, mm -hmm. even though finding Vincent is eventually not going to lead to the crime anyhow, because he's not the one who did it. Like, I, I love the way that that gets embedded in there. Well, I think that, yeah, I think that subplot does two really important things. Um, and, and I, and I do think it's a very interesting structure. This film is, it's a unique structure that I, because the subplot, first of all, brings Vincent and Anton back together. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's important. So he can defeat him one more time. Um, but the other way in which I think subplot is really important is that it proves once again the irony of the director's um, words when he says, um, no one exceeds his potential. And uh, the reason why he claims innocence is because his profile has no violence in it. So therefore, by his logic, he can't have committed the crime because, his, because he has no potential to commit to get, commit such a crime. So he kind of illustrates one side of what happens when you exceed your potential. You exceed your potential by doing something bad that, no, that your potential says you're not capable of doing. And on the other hand, you have Vincent doing something good that his potential says he has no, no ability of doing. And what I really love about the director's words is that he completely begs the question because he's, there goes on to say that if somebody if somebody exceeds their, their potential, it means that we've misju mis misjudged their potential. 
Mm -hmm. uh, which of course is a question begging way of, of dealing with it. So I really think the plot's important because it shows the other side of what it means to exceed your potential. Absolutely. Um, another sort of big scene in this movie, you know, if we're thinking about kind of this, the, this core idea of sort of striving and, and the sort of the power of, of will over this sort of determinism um, is when they're, when Anton and Vincent are having the, the last swimming race that they have and they're out in the water and he says uh, something like the, the sort of the key, the key to, to my success is that I've never saved anything for the trip back. Yeah. Right. So there is this sense that Vincent has, because nothing's expected of him, he has nothing to lose. And this gets to your fear of failure idea, right? That like, like, Anton has is has to constantly be afraid he's going to lose because if he he has something to lose or Vincent's expected to lose so mm. he, you know um so he can sort of put things on the line more cuz even if he dies out there that's what people would have expected anyhow I mean he's already outlived what he is supposed to live he's already out you know outdone those things um uh, but what I thought was interesting about that idea of I never saved anything for the trip back um and maybe I'm reading too much into this but I I I find it interesting that when he goes to Titan the whole goal is to get on that rocket and go but he's not thinking about well, what happens after what happens when I get back again mm -hmm. even there he's not thinking about saving anything for the trip back it's all about right. getting there but Eugene is thinking about is saving something for the trip back for Vincent, mm -hmm. you know, that Eugene gives him all that. So he says, there's enough of me here for two lifetimes because Vincent doesn't know how, doesn't think about the next, you know, the next day and the next day and the next day uh, when he thinks about, about his life, right? He, it's like, because if you have nothing to lose, you often don't plan ahead then, right. but you have Eugene saying sort of doing that for him. So it's interesting that he has that thing to learn from, uh, to learn from Eugene a little bit there as well. He also may have Irene to come back to. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, but what, okay. What I love about this as the, as the movie or as, as storytelling is um, the very first film we did, I remember we did Groundhog Day and I was like, but you know, what happens on February 3rd? Right, I love right. that the Eugene character is thinking about that. Yeah. That he's yeah. like, okay, well your, your life isn't over now that you've achieved this thing. You've striven mm -hmm. for this. You've achieved it. I need to think about, I'm going to think about the rest of this mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. sort of yeah. what goes on after this. This also then points to though, and I, I can't remember who I read this from. I, I, I read a, <clears throat> it wasn't a critique of this movie, but it was thinking about this movie and discrimination, mm -hmm. you know, a, as a, as a sort of story about discrimination made in 1997. Uh, the review was written, I think in the last couple of years. And it was talking about how ultimately this is a story this is not a story about toppling this system, right? That that um, Vincent is trying to achieve, you know, uh, trying to beat this system to achieve for himself. But there isn't necessarily this sense of like through his individual success and overcoming. It's not like all of the sudden this society topples. It's not looking at systems in that way. It's looking at how can how can someone succeed in this uh, in this. And I think the the presence yeah. of that genetic material left there you know points to this points to a question when he gets back i mean is vincent going to out himself when he gets back and say actually i am i am an invalid or is he going to continue to be jerome because he has mm. the ability to do that now i don't think that's a that's a, a 
bad thing about the movie. It's just saying the movie's not talking about that, but it does sort of, if you have any sense of like optimism at the end of this, it curbs that a little bit to think like, what has he achieved? I mean, he's achieved his dreams, but I think about the other invalids and like, it doesn't change anything for them. Yeah. No, that's no that that that's true. Uh, yeah, there's there's no evidence that the that the system is going to be upended as a result of what he's done because the fact is, despite the critique of the film, the the, the society does seem to be achieving a lot of its goals. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's achieving them at the cost of things that make us more human. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I don't think I, I this gets us back to the six fingered pianist. Um, I think you're right to pick up on that. That I don't think there's any indication that once they've once they've started down this path, there's no turning back. And that's where, for me, the film is scary in terms of you know societies, and and it's really scary now because our society faces a number of issues having to do with human nature, having to do with the environment, and we don't have a very good track record as a species. Of, of going backwards, of saying, or, or not going forward. Um, I mean, I still think things are very much up in the air in terms of how we're going to handle things like genetic uh, engineering. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think right now we've, we've drawn very hard lines. We have ethicists working on it, but Willard Galen is an ethicist, was an ethicist, or no, he still is. And he is the one who says that the other epigraph at the beginning of the film that we're supposed to fool with mother nature not only will we but mother nature wants us to right so in that sense it's a very the, the film it's really kind of a, a it, it juxtaposes um our our um enthusiasm for the success of the hero right with our realization that this is a quite possibly a one-off yeah um, i thought it was interesting that a, a shot that isn't in the film is um when he finally does take off for for Titan, and they have that great editing back and forth between uh, Jude Law's self-immolation and his achievement of his film, I kept thinking, "Oh, they're gonna they're gonna show Irene watching him go," and mm-hmm. they, they don't, and they don't, which I think is kind of interesting. So um, that is interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but that yeah, because she yeah, because she she doesn't he, she doesn't have you don't have a moment with her. No, no, you know, the, 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 the conventions of a romantic film would have her watching it and, the, and he and Nickel doesn't do that. And I think that's somehow significant. I'm not sure exactly how it's on. I, I think it, it helps us. It, it doesn't distract us with the promise of a different happy ending. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of leaves us with the dilemma you've described. Yeah, and, and 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 I will say in describing that, I say that not as a critique of the film, but to praise no. the film to be like, I think that's. I think that's really, really interesting. Um, a couple other things just about uh, kind of maybe less about kind of big ideas in the film. Um, I loved the I loved the cast of this film because I, I just kept encountering people where it's like, oh, wow, that this like this person is here. And, and I thought Jude Law is he's not an actor I think a lot about, but he's great in this movie. I mm-hmm. really, really. I really like like uh, like Jude Law a lot. I loved a lot of the sort of people in smaller roles and sort of in people showing up. Like I said, Tony Shalhoub is in mm-hmm. one scene. I mean, this would have been pre-Monk, I think. I don't know who yeah. I don't know who Tony Shalhoub was in 1997, but it was really cool to see him there. Dean Norris shows up. Yes, Dean Norris. Yes. <laughs> um, and then, uh, uh, like you said, Ernest Borgnine, Gore Vidal, uh, lots of like just interesting people in really small parts. Yeah, um, Blair, Blair Underwood is the doctor. That's right. 
Yeah. And then there are there are people who are even in smaller parts that I think are interesting. I don't know if you look look deep down on this cast list, but um, the delivery nurse at the beginning when when uh, Anton or excuse me when Vincent is born is Maya Rudolph. Oh, I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, I, I didn't oh. notice it when I saw it, but I was going through. That's that's, um, that's got to be her first. Her it's got to be yeah performance. Wow. Yeah. Uh, comedian Ken Marino plays a sign like just like like people in the background are like oh that's a, that's a person that I that I know from this other thing so there's this is an interesting kind of collection of people but one of the most interesting things with casting for this was there are two younger actors who play young Vincent mm -hmm. and I remember when I first saw them on the screen I thought well I don't really buy that that becomes Ethan Hawke yeah. because I've seen young Ethan Hawke because yeah. I've seen Dead Poets Society things like that but then this movie does a little magic trick because as I was watching it, and I watched this twice, I can't quite tell when they switch it to Ethan Hawke. There's something about the person who plays the like teenage version, yeah. and I'm thinking that doesn't look like him. And then I'm still thinking it doesn't look like him, and I realize I'm looking at Ethan Hawke now and saying it doesn't look like Ethan Hawke. That it's sleight of hand, and I it's really well done. I'm glad you pointed that out, Sam, because I I, I had the same experience, and I thought. I should know if that's Ethan Hawke or not. And I, I really can't tell. And I'm not sure when it became Ethan Hawke. So yeah, I absolutely agree. Which also does a great job later on when you, when, when we get into the, you know, Jude Law, Ethan Hawke and how people, how could you not tell them apart? It's like, well, they just showed me that I couldn't tell that's Ethan right. Hawke from not Ethan Hawke. So like, like I, I thought that was, that was just uh, a nice little piece of filmmaking there. Are there other things you want to talk about with this film? Yeah, a couple more things. One is I just want to say that when the uh, film came out, the uh, the advertise the the marketing campaign uh, included advertisements for people to have their children genetically engineered. So this is, of course, you know, as I say, it's a marketing campaign, but people actually thousands of people actually responded to that to that interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a couple of other thematic things I, I want to touch on. Um, and one of them, of course, is kind of related to the, the role that prejudice uh, plays in the film. But I think the, uh, part of it is, and this, this is embedded in, in certain racist kind of um, structures, but it's, it's this notion of a, of a purity code. Um, and, I, and I kept thinking of um, purity codes in terms of um, identifying whether or not a person is a person of color and the one drop rule. Mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it seems like the film is kind of picking up on that notion that it's just one drop of blood, it kind of validates you or in, invalidates you. Um, the, other, the other thing that I found... found can, can, we, can we talk about that for a second? Because that yeah. actually makes me think about... I mean, for one thing, I, one of the reviews I read talked about this as a movie about passing. Which yes. Is, which, which is it. And then there is that interesting scene when they're when they're little boys on the beach and he talks about playing at Blood Brothers and mm -hmm. Vincent cuts his thumb open and Anton picks up the shell and is about to and then he drops it and then challenges him to a swim. Yeah. Which which is a subtle moment about that, you know, that even the one drop that way it's like I don't know that I want to mix with you in that way even. But 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 I I also think there's two ways to read that. I think that's one way to read it, which is probably the primary way. But I think a secondary way is that Anton's afraid to cut his thumb. Oh, um, interesting. And, and Vincent has no no fear. So I I I kind of kind of read. I like it. that. I like that read as well. Yeah. So the the other thing I want to say is, um, kind of thinking about this from a more explicitly theological perspective. One of the interesting things to me about this genetic engineering is that there's kind of an effort to perfect both the mind and the body. 
you know, in, in some utopia slash dystopia futures, you have a very mo a much more, a very disembodied sense of human, of human capability. Like, you know, we're really all about the brain. And so if you can enhance the brain, you know, maybe you put the brain, you know, you take the contents of consciousness and you put it into some kind of a perfect vessel. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, in a sense, at least in terms of preserving some notion of how human beings operate, one thing you can say about what they're doing is they are recognizing and in a sense picking up on that mind-body connection because they are improving the body while they're also improving the mind. So there's this recognition, first of all, that that is a, a human identity. It's also recognized as a human limitation. But I also think about our contemporary society, and we have a similar kind of obsession with wellness connected to the body. And the images of them doing their stress tests on those treadmills just make me think of, you know, going to Lifetime Fitness or LA Fitness and all of us on our treadmills trying to make the make us become the best versions we can. And you read articles about, you know, you can improve your mental health by improving your physical health. And I think those are all good things. But it's, it's so it's interesting to me that the film kind of plays on that idea that it doesn't disembody the human being, but it does see that we are a package of mind and body. Absolutely. I, uh, are there other things you want to talk about before we move out of Gattaca? Uh, I guess I just want to mention that um, in 2011, uh, they did a poll of NASA scientists. Uh, and of course, if you want to be guided to, to your movie choices, NASA scientists are definitely the right people to listen to. Uh, but, but this is in terms of the best sci-fi films. And this was as of 2011, so 10 years ago. Uh, and they picked Gattaca as number one. That's um, really interesting. Of, of the seven. Um, uh, but they also pitched Contact, which may be scientifically accurate, but it's a film I really loathe. Um, but, but, then, but then I also started to think, just for our, our viewers' information, our listeners' information, I started to think about, well, what are some good films since then that, that are um, sci-fi films that I think could be on a list like that? And I, I thought about Arrival, which is a film that I find very infuriating. Uh, but I think it's kind of really interesting or interstellar, um, uh, loopers, the Martian, uh, edge of tomorrow, um, her, I think those are all kind of interesting films that, uh, that have some accurate science. Well, it's interesting to think about NASA scientists and this movie because they are, I mean, the other thing is like, I, well, before I saw this, I assumed Gattaca was the name of the society, but it's just mm. the name of the space program. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, and it, it made me think about one of my one of it's a flawed movie, but one of my one a movie that I absolutely love, uh, which is The Right Stuff, mm, which yeah. is all about people also trying to perfect themselves through striving to, in order to make it to into this sort of elite group that would become the Mercury astronauts. Um and it, and I, I thought a lot about that as I watched this too, because it was like, you have some of that physical training stuff, but it's like, what if it wasn't about these people doing all of these things? And I, I, I've known people who were um, seriously working to become astronauts and like the amount of things they have to do, even in terms of like, how do I physically improve my vision, not just through corrective lenses and things like that, but are there exercises I can do to make my vision better, to do this better, to do this better, so that I can keep climbing up the rung towards being an astronaut and things like that. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. is sort of like uh, genetically fast forwarding that stuff and just saying like, we've already taken care of all of that. Um, 
Of course, the, the other obvious thing about the title I want to be sure that I say, just so listeners know that we're aware of this, is the letters G-A-T and C, you know, stand for the four nuclear nucleobases of DNA, bases of DNA. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the most obvious reason for the title. Right, right. Oh, and I, one, one other scene that jumps to mind as I'm thinking about this is the uh, the job interview scene. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know where where basically it's like a, it's a it's either it's either a urine or a blood sample, and that's the job interview. <laughs> Right. Well, well, yeah. There's the, there's the well, there's two job interviews, right? There's the one where he doesn't provide the urine sample because he knows he's going to get he's going to get right, 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 right. And then there's the blood one, right? That was that. And and again, you know, whether you think that of that as a purity test or you think that of you know all we're really looking for is somebody that meets this one criterion. Nothing yep. else really matters. So yeah, I mean, it's it's it becomes the sort of the arrogance of that society, which is like, well, we don't actually even need to consider the person we just or or at least we consider the person only in terms of their genetic makeup we don't consider the person in terms of who they are right 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 yeah yeah yeah, yeah. wow i really loved this movie i think this is so interesting and when i feel like we've just scratched the surface of some of the questions that this um that this brings up and this raises uh what do you have for us for next week well, I was very or actually excited. for two weeks. I should say for two it's weeks. Two weeks we're, so. off, we're off next week and we'll come back. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I was very excited to hear that you appreciated Jude Law's performance. And um, I, I'm going to restrain myself from doing a whole series of sci-fi films. But I feel like we got to follow up with uh, Gattaca with AI, artificial intelligence, the Steven Spielberg, Stanley Kubrick uh, collaboration that stars Jude Law. Uh, I haven't seen it since it first came out. Uh, and I will confess that it's a film that disappointed me. Um, so I want to go back to it and I want to see if I change my mind. I need to say this because I was, I did spend this month trying to think, I wonder what Barrett's going to do next. And I actually thought, I bet I, I wouldn't be surprised if he has us watch AI. And I also saw it in the theater and was kind of disappointed. I want to tell you, Barrett, I watched this over this past month. And I went from being like, yeah, it's kind of disappointing to, I'm going to use the word maybe, like it's maybe a secret masterpiece. Like <laughs> I was kind of blown away by parts of it. Um, so I, I hope you have a great experience with it. I'm going to watch it again. I'm going to watch it with my uh, with my kids too, because I I uh, I really it kind of it, it 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 hit me harder than it did the first time that I saw it. So hopefully, I I I'm certain we'll have a good conversation about it. Well, I did I did I did I did a quick quick look at some of the reviews, and there was one reviewer who initially panned it and then came back years later and kind of apologized to Spielberg and said, "I actually think this is your masterpiece." Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so kind of reminds me of how I changed my mind about uh, Ethan Hawke's Hamlet. So that's right. Yeah. So so that's going to be a good one. Gattaca was going. Thank you so much for recommending this, and thank you for. Uh, for having this conversation. And we will be back in two weeks to talk about AI in the video store.